Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Nate, not Nathaniel, contrary to popular belief, um, but I'm one of the pastors here on staff with Christ Chapel College, just like Ben said, and I'm just stoked that I get to be up here with you this morning and, and share this morning together. Um, but I'm going to recap kind of where we've been. Obviously, you can see the big Hebrews written right there. This year, we're going through the book of Hebrews, which is awesome, and I'm, I'm glad that we're doing it. It's going to bleed into next semester because we're going to take our time through because there's a lot in there. Um, and if it's your first week joining us, and you're wondering, okay, like, am I missing out on something? Like, how far in are we? You haven't missed much. I'm about to give you a recap of where, we're, where we've been and where we're going. Um, and if you have been here, it'll be a nice little refresher for you. But we started off uh, two weeks ago, jumping into chapter one of Hebrews, and we saw Jesus introduced as the Son of Man, the exact imprint of God, the radiance of the glory of God, um, like God in every respect, because he is God. And today, we're in chapter two. Told you, you haven't missed that much. Um, chapter two is going to show Jesus like us in every respect. Um, it's a direct contrast to chapter one, uh, which highlights who he is as he relates to God, like his divinity, his holiness, like this divine figure, this awesome, glorious being. But today, we're going to see how he relates to us, and hi- it's going to highlight his humanity, and really, it's going to set the tone for the rest of the book of Hebrews, um, which kind of introduces Jesus to us as um, a human being, a man, like 100%, not just fully God, but also fully man, someone who breathed like us, felt like us, hurt like us, um, and I'm glad that we get to be here. Um, and last week, by the way, we talked about the great salvation we have in Jesus. It was great. Brett sang a song that he wrote. We all cried. It was amazing. Um, but before we jump in, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, by the way, if you need to start flipping there. But before we go in, just to provide a little more background on the book of Hebrews, um, this book was written to next-generation Christians, meaning it was written to a group of people who didn't get the opportunity to like, physically interact with Jesus. Um, they'd kind of, they were just removed from the time that he walked the earth. So a lot of the aim of this book was written to highlight his humanity, right? Because they didn't have the, the opportunity to sit at his feet and listen to his teaching and watch his like body language and his facial expressions, how he interacted with other people. They couldn't get a glimpse of his heart and what made him tick. And so a lot of this book, its aim is to give us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus um, and what made him tick as a human being. And the reason I bring that up is because I think that that's where we're at, right? We're a new generation of people far removed from the time that Jesus walked the earth, um, who didn't, don't have the opportunity to physically interact with Jesus. And I think, as a result, it can be seriously easy for us to miss out on who Jesus is, to get a full picture of who he is. Um, and if I'm being honest, I do that often, right? Like, it's hard for me to remember the full view of Jesus and his heart for me, the fact that he's like God, but at the same time was a human being. Um, and as a result, I forget that he can relate to me, Right? that he's like walked a mile or two in my shoes and knows where I'm at um, and knows what the human experience is like. Uh, And again, if I'm being honest, a lot of honesty will come out today from me, by the way. Um, I, there are moments in my life where I hesitate to run to Jesus because I forget this, right? 
Um, like, I think he's going to be ashamed of where I am because I became that person that I swore I would never be or did that thing that I swore I would never do. Um, you get that situation. Like, breaking that promise that you swore you would keep. Um, and more often than not, like, even this past week, guys, the past week and a half, I've been sitting in this idea that I, like, am stuck in some sin in the situation that I feel like I can't escape. Like, I'm in too deep. It's complex. Um, there's no way you can help me out of it. And I found myself thinking either, A, this is something that I have to fight on my own, and I've got to figure out how to get out of it by, like, gritting my teeth, making things happen, pulling myself up by the bootstraps, trying again, or B, like, I, again, I feel like I'm in too deep. Things are too complex. Like, the Lord's just going to leave me hanging in this. It's like, sorry, Nathan, but you have to deal with this now. Like, there's no redemption from this. Like, this is where you're at. Obviously, those are just lies, and I'm sure a lot of y'all can, you know, relate to that. But here's the reality. I think the moments in life when we feel alone, um, particularly, like, exposed and afraid, and, like, the walls of life are just crumbling in, life gets heavy, we find ourselves in situations that seem impossible to climb out of, we tend to believe one of two things. I think that we either start to believe that God can't help us in those situations, or that he just simply won't. Like, he either doesn't have the capability to help us, or he just flat out doesn't have the desire to do so. And maybe somewhere along that spectrum, the thought comes up of, man, like, there are so many people in this world how could the God of the universe take notice of, like, me and know exactly what I'm going through, the complexities of the situation? Like, there's billions of people in this world. Like, how could he take notice of me? Or, like, similarly, like, man, there are so many other people who have earned, like, God's favor and respect. Like, Francis Janun, like, he's God's favorite, I'm pretty sure. Like, he's definitely earned it, but, like, why would he care for me and want to help me, someone who's wayward and lost and keeps keeps shoving him away and stiff-arming him or is continually stuck in this thing Like, I found myself thinking both of those things. Um, And I think when we believe one of those things, wherever we land on that spectrum, I think that we're missing out on the full scope of who Jesus is, what his heart is for you, and what he has the power to do, right? I think that we are leaving life and freedom on the table when our mind and our heart starts to go to that place. Um, So basically what we're going to address today is, like, what if I told you that our God actually both can and will? He has the capability to help you, and also the desire. And he knows exactly what kind of mess you're in because he's been there himself and he knows exactly how we feel in the turmoil that we're experiencing and that there is no too deep that he can't pull you out of. Um, So here's what I want to do. Jumping into Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. um, And we're going to dive into this passage and we're going to pull from it four characteristics of of Jesus, four attributes of Jesus that I think... uh, answer that kind of question and show us what his heart is, what he has the power to do, um, and how he relates to us. And again, I think it's going to set the tone for the rest of our time in the book of Hebrews. Um, And there's going to be a lot here. We kind of have a mouthful of a passage today, so we're going to break it up bit by bit. Um, And again, we're just going to highlight four characteristics of Jesus. So with that said, we are jumping into Hebrews 2 verse 5, and it says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, but it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Um, Okay, so this little part in scripture, if you're looking in your Bible, it looks different than the rest of the book of Hebrews. It's because it's a reference to a psalm in the Old Testament. And if you remember Ben saying, 
A lot of the book of Hebrews is a bunch of references to the Old Testament, which is really awesome, and we get to touch on that quite a bit. But this particular passage is a reference to Psalm 8. Um, and if you go and read Psalm 8, which I encourage you to do, it's basically the psalmist is essentially saying, who are you, God, God of the universe, who created the heavens and the earth, created the oceans, the seas, the mountains, everything, that you take notice of me at the same time? Um, and just about any commentary that you read on this, the first thing that gets highlighted is that the psalmist goes from talking about how God's creating the world, how he's in, in control of everything and has power over everything and all these majestic things, and then immediately moves to like, but what am I that you are mindful of me at the same time, that you care for me, and how astonishing it is that the God of the universe who made the heavens and the earth also takes notice of him. And it, that word mindful, I think, goes beyond just taking notice, right? Like, I can stand up here in stage, on stage and look at this room full of people, and if I take the time, I can notice each one of you in this room. But that word mindful goes beyond that, and that word, like, cares for. Like, I can't, as much as I would love to, I don't know each of you personally enough to know exactly where you're at today. But what the psalm is saying is that the God of the universe does. Um, to get a little more real with that idea— to share a time back when I was in college, uh, I started dating my now wife, my junior year of college. Um, and obviously when you're dating someone, she was beautiful, so I was smitten. I was like, I've gotta do everything that I can to make her feel loved and valued and cared for by me, right? So I had a, uh, my junior year, this was awful. I had a 7 a.m. class, like why does that exist? Think like, it was awful, I missed a lot of them. Um, but uh, most days I would try and take advantage of that and I knew that I would, past my girlfriend's house, my now wife, um, on the way to class. So I would like, the night before, or if I woke up early enough, which was rare, I'd write her a little note that let her know that I was simply thinking of her and that she was on my mind just because I wanted her to know that like, I cared about her, right? I'm trying to do everything to win her over. Um, and eventually it worked because we're now married, so yeehaw. But um, I would write a note, I'd go to, go to class, and on the way I'd go by her house, and I'd pull up next to her car and I'd put it in the windshield of her car. That way I knew whenever she was ready to get her day started, going to her class or whatever, she would come out, go to her car and see this little note and she'd know that I was thinking of her. Um, what's funny, again, it worked, we're married, but I've kind of stopped doing that. Um, and she has kind of turned the tables on me though in the past couple recent months. Like we actually had a conversation. She was like, remember when you used to write me notes all the time? And I was like, yeah, like I need to start doing that again. Um, but she, the past couple months has started to write me notes. Um, her name's Lexi. She's a nurse at Cook Children's Hospital. Um, she has day shifts, which means she wakes up at like the butt crack of dawn, like at 5 a.m. Um, it's super early and she's out of the house by 6 a.m. So she has started writing me letters and writing me notes and putting them right on our kitchen counter where I make my coffee every morning. And so every now and then I'll wake up and I'll see this like note or this letter and it's a, like encouraging me whenever she knows I'm at my lowest, which has happened a lot, unfortunately. Um, or like really like championing me and just like saying I'm in my corner if you've got this really big day coming up or whatever. And it lets me know that she understands me and she gets exactly where I'm at. And honestly, it's been the coolest thing for me to be on the other side of that part of our relationship because I know she is thinking of me and is mindful of me. Um, and if we're real, like, aren't those the best kind of text messages that we get and the best kind of notes we get? Like when in passing, you're talking about how you've had a busy week, you're losing sleep, you've got a big project coming up and you kind of mention it to a friend. And then like, you, you even forget that you mentioned it to them and you go on talking about the rest of whatever you talk about. And then three days later, ice cream and a note show up at your door saying like, Hey, I've been thinking about you. Like, good luck on that test. You're going to crush it. Right? Like, aren't those the best moments? Like, I feel so loved and known, and I have ice cream now. Like, it's great. Um, 
like, let's be real. As much as I would hate to admit it to my wife, and I'm glad she's not here for me to say this, but, like, I am not constantly thinking about my wife, right? As much as I would like to, and as much as I love her. And she's not constantly thinking about me. And our closest friends and family, as many notes and gifts and whatever that they leave us, they're not constantly thinking about us. Like, we'd be a narcissist to think so, right? Like, we just get too easily distracted. But what this passage is highlighting is that God is that perfection of that idea, that he is constantly mindful of you as an individual, as a person, at the same time as being the God of the universe, which is astonishing. Like, if he were to sleep, he would wake up, think about you nonstop throughout his day, every second of every minute of every hour, and then he'd go to sleep, dream about you nonstop. Like, that is who he is. He cares about you. He values you. His natural instinct is to think about you and to love you. Um, And I started with that one because I think it's beautiful. So that first idea is that Jesus is mindful um, of us. Don't want you to miss it. Now, moving on, though, I think it's really cool. You're about to see that he's also mindful of you. But uh, let's read verse 8 again. I think it'll be up on on the screen as well. Um. Yep, okay, so it says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Um, if you're like me, I thought I kind of had an idea of what that word subjected mean, but I was, means, but I wasn't like 100% sure, so I was safe and I looked it up. Um, to be subjected means to be placed under authority or control, meaning... Uh, Well, I mean, that's a great definition. That's what it means. Um, But what I want you to notice is that that word everything is literally placed in front of it every single time that word is used. Everything in subjection, everything in subjection, and one more time, everything in subjection. Literally, everything, what this little piece is saying is that everything literally is placed under Jesus's authority and control. Um, Colossians Chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, I believe, if we can throw that up on the screen, too, says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what I want to highlight here is that not only is the God of the universe mindful of you, but he's also in control, and that is is an amazing thing. The fact that those two things happen at the same time. Um, Think about it. Going back to kind of my dating experience, I want you to imagine that you were dating someone, and maybe you are. Let's imagine that you were dating the most thoughtful, kind, caring, loving person. Like, you know that they are thinking about you all the time. Like, it's almost annoying how much they love you, right? Now, imagine that they are also, like, the owner of West Bend, like, and have authority over everything that goes on there. That's, like, the area that has HG Supply Co., core power, ascension, mamaka, like all that stuff. So it's like, not only do they think about you all the time, but like they call the shots about what goes down there. So like, okay, you got a black tag membership to core power or they're shutting down ascension and you're having your date night there. Like that's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, By the way, ascension has a $12 cup of coffee and that's kind of outrageous. I don't know if y'all knew that. It's just insane. Um, Besides the point, but how beautiful is that, though, that the God of the universe who is mindful of you knows exactly where you're at, what you're going through, is also the one calling the shots. He is graciously governing everything about what goes on in this world. Um, and we'll, we'll, we're going to touch on this a lot more, but as we move on to this third characteristic that we're about to talk about, we're going to see that we have a God who isn't just in control and isn't just mindful of where you're at. He, just, he doesn't just simply know what you're going through 
but he's been there himself. So let's pick up in verse 9. It says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their, founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. We'll stop right there and we'll finish the rest of that in just a second. But what I want us to notice are two things. It talks about Jesus suffering first, and then it starts using that word brother. So what we see here is that Jesus is a fellow sufferer, and he's also a brother. And I think, therefore, that makes Jesus relatable um, to us. And let's start with that idea of suffering, though, because it's mentioned a lot. Like, let's, let's be honest. Suffering is a real thing, right? Like, we have all experienced some form of suffering one way or another, to varying degrees, but it is one of the harsh, unavoidable realities of the human, exper human experience, right? Like, I am sure if I asked you to, we could all raise our hands and say that we've all experienced suffering to some degree or another. But we humans, as flesh and blood, will inevitably experience suffering at some point in our lives. It says that Jesus willingly, likewise, partook of the same things. He's experienced suffering to a greater extent than we could ever imagine. He was made low, suffered death. It says that he tasted death. And I don't know about you, but the part where it said he was made perfect through suffering sounds like it must have been an awful lot of suffering, right? Like he was made perfect through suffering. It, I, it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around that. But the point is, is that he's been through it, right? Um, and moving on to that word brother, because I don't want us to overlook it. It's tossed in there three times in those short few verses. Um, I asked a buddy earlier this week or maybe last week as I was preparing for this, um, I said, hey, dude, like, what do you think of when you think of an ideal brother? And he responded. He thought about it for a second. He was like, okay, I think of someone who gets me and who I can feel like myself around. Um, I imagine us like eating together and laughing together, and I imagine someone who listens well. And another friend who I asked said, my brother's typically the first person that I call, right? Like the first person I call when I get in trouble or I find myself in a bind um, because they're a safe place because they either have, if they're an older brother, they've probably been through that experience before. They know what it's like to like have mom and dad kind of like looking over, you know, and it's like, yeah, we can't tell them. But like you go to your brother, like he's typically your first call. Um, when you think of a brother, like they share a common ground with you. There's that, that's a relationship and a bond like no other, right? It's different from that of a sister, from a brother, from a, f or from a mother, father, friend, whatever. Like, the brother relationship is very unique. Um, brothers will cry with you. They will fight with you. Sometimes they'll even fight for you if you have a really good brother. And this word, brother, is the same word that Jesus uses to describe his relationship to us multiple times throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and I can show you different ways in which he uses them throughout if you want to find me after. But I don't want us to miss that, that that's the word he uses to describe his relationship with you and me, his brother. And I think it gives us a clear window into who he is and his heart for us. Um, now let's finish the rest of this passage here. So we've got, so far, Jesus is mindful, Jesus is in control, and then he's relatable. Um, 
Picking back up in verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the, ab- the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, what I want to highlight here uh, is that we see Jesus coming to liberate us from the power of fear and death. So this last characteristic, if you're taking notes that you can write down, is that Jesus is a conqueror, and a liberator. Think of what those two words mean, right? Uh, Think of the word conqueror or destroyer as the picture is painted in the text. Um, To conquer something means to overcome and take control of something, right? Now, to destroy something means to put an end to the existence of a thing by attacking it or conquering it. That's a crazy definition, right? Like to destroy something literally means to put an end to, a literal end to the existence of a thing. Um, And think of what we typically think of, rightly so, as the ultimate destroyer of things. Death, right? Like death literally puts an end to the existence of things, like of life. It's the most feared destroyer. And that's why we hate it. That's why it sucks. That's why death stings. It makes us angry, it makes us sad, it makes us lonely, makes us scared and confused because it destroys life. It puts a literal end to the existence of life. And life is beautiful. It's not meant to be destroyed. But death is the most feared destroyer. What this passage is telling us is that it's not the ultimate destroyer. Like Jesus destroyed death. Jesus, in his own death, burial, and resurrection, put an end to the one that has a power has the power of death. He destroyed the destroyer, and I don't want you to miss that and how significant that is, right? That should set us free. That should set us free from being slaves to the fear of death. You see, Jesus came, it says in Scripture, to seek and save the lost and save us and set us free from the pangs of death. One of my favorite verses is John 10.10, and it literally says that the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, this is Jesus speaking, came so that you may have life and have it abundantly. Friends, there is an enemy out there that we see in this passage who wants to rob you of life. But there is a good and gracious God who offers you a better way and offers you freedom from the things that are robbing you of life. You see, the God of the universe, is. this is what this passage is saying, the God of the universe came down to earth, wrapped himself up in skin to be beaten and bruised to suffer the pangs of death he was literally spat on and went to a cross so that he could set you free right and offer you life to set you free from your inner turmoil your guilt your shame whatever you're going through your broken promises that you couldn't keep the pits of life that you're finding yourselves in that is what the god of the universe came down to set you free from because he loves you it says he helps the offspring of abraham that is you and me in christ Verses 17 and 18, they tell us why he chose to relate to us in the way that he did. Why he was made like us in every respect. We see that word brother again, so that he could pay for our sins. And remember that the payment of sin, it says for the wages of sin is death. But he took care of that. 
says he tasted death for you and for me. Um, and he came to destroy it. And I think that that last verse, verse 18, helps show us that he gets it. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, so far, we have Jesus is mindful. Jesus is in control. He is relatable. He can relate to us because he suffered, because he relates to us as a brother. And he's also a conqueror and a liberator. Before we put this text up for the day, I want to highlight one more thing in this passage, and it's in verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now, again, this passage sets the tone for the rest of the book of Hebrews. You're going to see this word high priest a ton, um, and I'm going to let the big guns like Ben and Francis take care of explaining what that means and why Jesus is the perfect uh, high priest. But today, I want to focus on that word faithful. Um, I've been reading this book. Um, I read it last year. I'm rereading it right now as I've been preparing for this sermon. It's a great book. Highly recommend. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, The subtitle is literally The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's amazing. If you want to cry, read the book. Um, If you want to cry in the best way. It's by a guy named Dane Ortland. Um, But Dane Ortland Ortland put it this way. He says, this word, referring to the word faithful, says this word gets at the idea that God will never throw his hands up in the air despite all the reasons his people give him to do so. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He has a commitment to his people with whom he has gladly bound himself in an unbreakable covenant bond. He refuses even to entertain the notion of forsaking us who deserve to be forsaken or of withdrawing his heart from us the way we do towards others who hurt us. You see, we all have a tendency to reduce God to be like us, right? Like think of when relationships get tough or situations get messy and hard and complicated. What's our natural instinct? Our natural instinct is to throw our hands in the towel, in the air and throw the towel in and like, all right, like, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. Like, this is hard. Like, is it worth me, like, still pursuing this thing or being in this thing? Because it's hard. Like, our natural instinct is to give up when things get tough, as much as we'd like to admit it or not. But God's bent, Jesus' bent, his heart isn't to just move away and run away and flee from it or throw in the towel, but to move closer, to step further into the mess with you. And it's saying he's not going to give up along with you somewhere along the way just because it gets too complicated or too messy or it's too much and too overwhelming. This word tells us that he's going to be faithful throughout. And God even describes himself this way throughout all of Scripture. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to realize that the heartbeat of the Old Testament is this phrase, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Um, Dane Orland, in that book again, reflects on this same verse, and he says, now this does not mean that his goodness shuts off whenever it gets to generation 1001, right? But rather, it's God's own way of saying that there is no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace to you. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. And I think that's beautiful. But what do we do with this, right? So we see Jesus is mindful. We see that he's in control, relatable. He's a conqueror, liberator. Those are all great things. He's faithful throughout. But what does this mean for you as a college student right here, right now, today? Right? It's a great, great question. Um, 
My boy, Dane Orland, I'm going to quote him one more time. I, I love him, uh, if you can't tell. And this will be the last time I quote him. But he says, he says this. He says, God is not the sum total of a number of different attributes, like pieces of a pie making up a whole pie. Rather, God is every single attribute perfectly. He is mindful. He is powerful. He is relatable. He is all those things, so on and so forth, in endless perfection. Um, all of his attributes seem to be set out on his love for us, right? Like, meaning... Like, his impulse is to love us. He is all of those things perfectly. And his desire, his heart, his very disposition is to invite us into overwhelming freedom and abundant life because of that love that he has for us. But again, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? How, what are you going to walk out of this room with? Um, a, I hope you walk out of this room with just a truer understanding of who Jesus is, is um, and what his heart is for you. But I think that you need to know that this is a really good thing for you. Again, the fact that he is not only mindful of you, but also in control, not only relatable, but has the power to set you free from everything that you find yourself in, the sin patterns, the situations, everything that's bogging you down. He has the power to set you free and offer you life instead. I think what that tells us is that we can run to him in confidence, right? That when we're in those moments, when we think that we're in too deep or too far gone, that's when the idea of I'm going to figure this out on my own or he doesn't get it, any of those ideas, that's when those stop and abiding in Jesus gets really, really sweet. Running to Jesus gets really, really sweet in those moments. I think it means that he's your first call, right? Like going back to that idea of the brother. Like who are you running to with everything that's going on when you find yourselves in situations that you don't know what to do? Um, and just to give you a practical way, again, I told you there would be a lot of honesty in today. Um, what does that look like? Like, what does that conversation look like with the God of the universe? What does that kind of prayer look like? Um, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but this past week and a half for me, for some reason, has just been nuts. And I have found myself just in shame and in, like, feeling like I'd, like, how did I get here? It's kind of been the question that I've been asking myself. Um, and this is from this past Monday, but I'm going to read you, Honestly, it kind of fits perfectly. I was wondering if I was going to do this. I'm going to read you part of it, not all of it. Um, otherwise, you're going to know everything about me. Um, which, like, come ask. I'll, I'm not afraid to tell you. Um, but I'm going to read you what, like, my prayer looks like with this in mind um, and knowing that I can run to him in confidence. This is at the end of me just processing and journaling through a lot of what has been going on in my mind and my heart recently. But I said, Jesus, I pray that I would be so caught up and captivated by my affections for you that nothing else would matter. I pray that knowing you love me, that you chose me and call me yours would be what satisfies my heart and its longings. None of what lies beneath the surface of my heart catches you by surprise or disappoints you. And not believing that truth is what makes me want to run away and hide. So would I rest in your grace? Would you lead me to the way of life and into your heart and realign my affections and satisfy these desires of my soul? I love you. Make that more true. I need you. Make this a bigger reality. I trust you. Help me do this even when I want to trust myself. And again, that's just a snippet. But guys, what I'm trying to say is that we have a God who loves us despite us and despite the situations that we find ourselves in. And that there is no too deep that he won't pull you out of or no too far gone where he isn't already running towards you. So when you find yourselves in those moments thinking that there's no way that he can redeem this, there's no way, God, that you can fix this. When you find yourselves in those pits of shame and guilt and regret, whatever it is, remember that you have a God who climbs into that deep, dark pit 
and sits in the mud with you. He wraps his arms around you like a close friend or like a brother, holding you, caring for you, crying with you, and then he offers you a way out, saying, I have fought this fight for you. Come on into life and the freedom. You've been set free. Um, before I close, I'm going to read one more prayer to you, and this is another psalm, uh, and it's a psalm of David, and David is described throughout Scripture as a man after God's own heart, um, and he's someone to look up to, someone to admire, someone, it's like, what is looking, uh, what is following Jesus look like? Go look at David in Scriptures, but he's also a man that is immensely broken, and he messed up multiple times. It's like, there's a story where he slept with someone else's wife and then kills a man so he doesn't have to face the consequences of that man finding out later. Like, some really wicked stuff. And you'll see in the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms are his prayers. Literally just in the entire scope of the human experience and the emotion that we feel, he's going through all of it and taking all of it to the Lord. And you'll see him, even when he's at his worst and feeling stuck and in shame, he's still saying, despite that, like, you are still good, God. Despite my brokenness, you are still good. Bless your name. So I'm going to read us a little passage from Psalm 103, just the first five verses. And if you want to, you can close your eyes and let me read it over you. You don't have to, um, but this is how we're going to close. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, and who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and who satisfies you with good. Friends, you have a God who is mindful of you and knows exactly where you're at, who is graciously in control, knows what it feels like to suffer, and who has the power to set you free from whatever you feel trapped in. My prayer is that we run to him. I'm going to pray. Lord, uh, we love you, and we thank you for the opportunity to just sit in your word and get to know you more clearly and more truly. Um, God, that is a gift. Would we never neglect it? God, I pray over this room, Lord, and that we would be captivated by your heart for us, um, Lord, and that we would get a true understanding of who you are and what you have the power to do, Lord, and that we would run to you whenever we're experiencing shame and feeling the weight of our brokenness and life is getting heavy, Lord. I pray that we would run to you and experience your grace and your rest and everything that you have to offer, that we would not forget all your benefits. Um, God, we praise you that you redeem us and you are God of restoration. Um, Jesus, we love you and we trust you and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.